Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. The time is just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Wapanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be discussing the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act that was signed into law on October 10th, 1980. This is a very extensive subject, and we'll cover the times leading up to the act and what the act consisted of, who got what, and what we think the act, uh, and, and do we think the act uh, has improved tribal economies in any way. And uh, we'll continue our discussion uh, next month and talk about the immediate effects of the act on current issues. Um, I'll be your sole host today as uh, my usual host, uh, co-host Maria Gerard is uh, not feeling well today and uh, we hope she's feeling better for the next show. Um, today, you know, as I said, I'll be the sole person here. And uh, if you have comments as I'm, as I'm talking, please feel free to call in one uh, 625-9378. Now, the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act uh, is a document that basically defines the relationship between the tribes and the state. Uh, it used to be that uh, when the uh, when the when Maine became a state, it enacted a whole bunch of laws that governed everything that the tribes did, and there was probably a law uh, governing us for just about every day of the year and everything we did. Uh, the uh, the land claim sort of took over that role, and uh, and uh, that was a uh, an, an act that uh, was agreed upon by the federal government, the uh, state of Maine, and the tribes. And we negotiated that for, for many months. Um, but I do want to say that, uh, and, and it's my personal opinion, and, and I think that of a, of a number of other people, that if the tribes were not in such dire economic straits, uh, there'd be no land claims. And uh, I, I think that... Uh, Especially during the 1970s, the, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Advisory Commission did a study and looked at the conditions of the, uh, the tribal uh, communities in the state of Maine and found them very um, po- poverty-stricken. And it, it, they uh, wrote that up in a report. And I think the unemployment rate was up to like 65% which is very high, and the, and the tribes were, uh, were really desperate at that time. And that was also uh, along the same time of the, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act, 
where that uh, was implemented, and and the tribe sort of saw that happen. I remember uh, Wayne Newell making a statement that, uh, uh, well, you know, if if uh, the people of color can get their rights, then you know there's some hope for us, and so that's sort of the the uh, the civil rights act that uh, that started sort of gave us hope and and so uh, we we uh, we really wanted to improve our our economies we were in dire straits and uh, uh, you know just just not doing well at all not, sometimes I think we're we're uh, we're in a circle uh, and and just to uh, give you an idea of how the legislature sort of viewed the tribes. Um, I was sort of reviewing the uh, the debate that the legislature had to seat the tribal reps because they had been unseated since uh, 1941. And in looking at that debate, it it you know it, it sort of gives paints a broad picture of uh, how the state government viewed the tribes, and the debate uh, it, it took place. Uh, in 1975, on the floor of the House, and uh, and actually the date was January 27th, 1975, and I'm just going to uh, read you a couple of excerpts from that debate, just so you'll get a flavor of how the legislature was viewing uh, the tribes, and this really, you know, it wasn't uh, all that long ago, and the. They were there was this bill that uh, was introduced by uh, Representative Caney of Waterville to give the tribal reps back their seats, and of course there's some speculation as to why the 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 seats were lost in the first place. Um, but she put this bill in, uh, or this House rule in, to give the tribal reps back th- their seats, and she says, according to the record, uh, she says. Uh, like most freshmen, I guess this was her first year uh, in the legislature, I had high hopes of bringing innovative uh, problem-solving to the floor of the House. Uh, so here I am with my first presentation, merely trying to establish something which had been tradition in this chamber for over a hundred years. The order before you calls for a change in the House rules to allow a seat and speaking privileges by consent of the Speaker of the House for the two tribally elected Indian representatives. It does not call for voting privileges, so there would be no violation of the one-man-one-vote rule or any possible uh, charges of conflict of interest. The Indian representatives uh, had floor privileges until 1941, when a change in a single word in our statutory law made them representatives at the legislature instead of representatives to the legislature, relegating them to mere onlookers from the balcony or lobbyists in the halls. Why was the change made? The 1939 legislative record shows the storm-brewing debate over a pay raise for the Indian representatives, centering on should the Indians, without the responsibility of voting, have the same pay as other legislators? We still pay them $2,000 plus 30 days expenses per biennium, but don't receive the benefit of their voice. 
Many attempts uh, have since been made to reinstate those floor privileges, and it is uh, important to look at some of the very legitimate questions which have been raised. Why should the Indians have a seat and speaking privileges and not other minorities? And haven't the Indians been adequately represented in the past? The answer is that Maine's approximately 3,000 Indians are so scattered throughout Northeast Maine that they do not have a real impact in the election of a regular House member. Uh, it is only recently that the two tribes are even allowed to vote for actual members of this chamber. In 1968, six years ago, only the help of Representative Mills when he threatened court action. Uh, if this doesn't show Maine historically treating Maine-born Indians like citizens of a separate nation, I don't know what would. Even so, the state of Maine has never acknowledged any inherent sovereign powers in the tribes. Even though treaties between Maine and the two tribes, including such words as so long as they shall remain a nation and reside. So this was part of uh, her introduction of this rule change to the House. Well, there was a huge debate on this, and, and it lasted for, you know, two or three, maybe even four hours going back and forth. But in reading this, what really struck me was the testimony of one uh, representative, Mills. Uh, I don't believe he's, he's related to, to Peter. I would, I would hope not. <laughs> uh, but this he was, and the thing is, you know, he was testifying in favor of the tribal reps to be seated. And uh, again, I'm, I'm sort of uh, telling you, talking to you about this debate to show you um, how the legislature viewed the tribes. So here's Mr. Mills' testimony in favor of allowing the uh, tribal reps to be seated. For over 10 years, I have represented two Indian reservations in the old district that I formerly represented. I now have one Indian reservation left, but that is not the important point. The important point here is that we deal with our Indian reservation as a nation of people who are peculiar unto themselves for their own culture. It would be very difficult for any of us here to understand their type of culture, but it is very clear. It is traditional it is historical, and it reaches back into time. The first bill I introduced went for $5,000. It was to establish water on Indian reservations. There was one pipe to serve the whole reservation with a faucet to it that had to be thawed out in the wintertime. I was instrumental in introducing a bill here that went through to establish water and sewerage on the Indian reservation. There was quite an argument, a lot of debate. It was a long-winded deal. And it, when it was accomplished here, and the legislature had approved it, and this is a known fact, and accomplished and construct, constructed on the Indian reservations in the state of Maine, uh, then did I get a surprise. And he's talking about this, the sewerage uh, pipes that were put into the reservations. Uh, then did I get a surprise that I had never expected. The letters that came to me from doctors all over the United States, some from Canada, praising what had been accomplished by the Maine legislature. The fact of it was that the Indians in their poverty, in their pitiful conditions, were known carriers of virus diseases. To let you know exactly how this thing worked, if a disease broke out on Indian reservation, 
in all the filth that was accumulated there, to the Indian way of thinking, one person dying, that is nothing. Two persons dying, that is nothing. But when three or four or seven uh, more get sick, they start packing up and they leave between two and five in the morning to all parts of the United States and over into Canada. According to the American Medical Association, this was the thing that had been plaguing the physicians for a long time. These people being carriers of violent diseases, these were the type of letters that I received from the doctors. I'm not going to bore you with any more of these things I have been th- I've been through, but I'm going to say this. I see no reason why we shouldn't seat these Indians and let them speak on their own Indian affairs when there are bills here for them to consider or us to consider as they are doing it without a vote. This cannot be done because it violates the United States Supreme Court rule. Well, anyway, that testimony, uh, that was a... That was in favor of, of the, the tribal reps being seated. So it was that sort of uh, attitude and the way of viewing tribal communities that was prevalent in the legislature in the 70s. So that's, uh, that's sort of setting the background. And there was one person also that testified that uh, the, uh, the Indians didn't want to work anyway. So it was that type of thing, but event, but at at the end of the day, the uh, tribal reps uh, got their seats, and uh, they retained those seats to uh, this day. And now back to the, uh, to the to the main Indian land claims. Again, that was sort of like the the poverty and unemployment and very dismal setting that they were in in the in the 70s now the main indian land claims case was exceedingly complex and had tremendous social legal and economic Im- implications for the state of maine uh, the claim covered 60 percent of the state 350,000 people living in a disputed area after four years of negotiations the main Indian Land Claim Settlement Agreement of 1980 was reached. But I do want to say that during those negotiations, there was a lot of fear in the, uh, in the overall non-tribal communities that uh, the tribes would, in fact, uh, win two-thirds of the land base of the state. And then what would happen to all of the, uh, the houses and people that uh, had lived on this land for uh, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, even 100 years. Uh, so they were, they were very worried, and uh, in the papers and the editorials, uh, there were editorials that, uh, that featured uh, people threatening to shoot uh, any Indian that they saw. So this was really uh, escalating to a to a high peak uh, because of this, this fear of, of the unknown and the fear that the, that the tribes were going to take all of their, all of their land back. Uh, but uh, a settlement was reached, and uh, it was reached over the objections of then-Governor uh, Longley. And, uh, and he basically said that uh, he was not going to uh, 
you know, he didn't want to, he didn't want to settle this and, uh, and he was not going to pay one penny of, uh, of state money to settle this. So that was one of the criteria that was followed throughout this uh, land claim settlement was that the state did not pay one penny uh, towards the settlement. Uh, the, uh, the tribes <coughs> received uh, $81.5 million, uh, and this was the largest settlement of its kind in the country at, at the time. And it was the first to include provisions for the uh, reacquisition of land. The settlement affected Wabanaki people in Maine in three different ways. Uh, it defined a special relationship between the state of Maine and the Passamaquoddy tribe and Penobscot Indian Nation. It was agreed that these tribes would have authority over their own internal matters on the reservations. At the same time, it was agreed that they would continue the uh, trust relationship with the federal government that had been recognized during the 70s. Now, the tribes also gave up much of their uh, sovereignty, much of their jurisdiction, legal jurisdiction. And, uh, <clears throat> and in, in discussing the terms of this settlement, I, I remember attending some of the uh, Penobscot Nation tribal meetings and uh, giving up the sovereignty and because, you know, the, the tribes were really trying to come out from under the, the heavy-handed control of the state and saw this as a way to do that to also maintain their sovereignty and also become uh, economically uh, self-sufficient. So, because, you know, they saw this land as, as a resource and a, and a way to uh, get some money to, to start uh, economic development in, in their communities. So they all had their dreams. Uh, and they, and they, one of their dreams was, you know, to get out of poverty. And they, and they saw this uh, land claims as a way to do that. But I will say that uh, a lot of community uh, tribal members at the time and still today didn't agree with that, uh, that settlement act and fought very hard uh, to stop it. And, uh, and I think many of us, including myself, uh, once we've, we've seen the, uh, the results of uh, some of the state court cases uh, that have been brought, and we'll talk about the court cases and the present current day issues uh, next, next month. We'll go into detail on those. Um, but once we've seen that and we've seen how some of these uh, sections of the land claims that have been uh, sort of left open for interpretation uh, have been uh, sent to court and the, and the court that the uh, questions go to, of course, is the, the state court. And, we, and, and the state court has 99.9% uh, .9 of the time uh, found in the uh, state's favor. And, and, those are, and, the, and in all of those instances, those are very complicated uh, cases. And most of them, probably all of them, involve the, the paper companies. Uh, the uh, uh, see, you know, it provided the second thing that it did was it provided federal recognition 
for the Holton Band of Maliseeds, but did not define a special relationship uh, with the state of Maine. <clears throat> and I, in the, the Holton Band, I guess, has uh, since uh, negotiated a settlement with the state as well. Uh, thirdly, it did not include Maliseet people who were not members of the Holton Band and the Aroostook Band of Micmacs. It was not until late 1991 that the Aroostook Band of Micmacs won federal recognition. And the uh, Micmacs uh, never did negotiate a, a settlement with the state. So they are basically solely uh, federally recognized. The, uh, and again, I'll, I'll give you the, this is uh, WERU, and my name is Donna Loring. I'm, I'm hosting the program, and we're discussing the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act. If you have any comments or questions, please call 1-866-625-9378. The, uh, the basis for the claim, and, and again, I, you know, this is very complicated legal stuff, uh, but the basis for the claim was simple. Uh, in 1790, the first Congress of the United States enacted the Non-Intercourse Act, declaring that any transfer of land from Indians to non-Indians non had to be approved by Congress. If such a transfer was not approved, it was not valid. This law was designed to protect Indians from, from unscrupulous and unfair transactions. And I'd just like to say here, it's too bad we didn't have a law like that for uh, after the land claims because there were certainly a lot of uh, unscrupulous people that took advantage of, of uh, the tribe's lack of knowledge in, uh, in economic uh, issues and economic development. So between 1794 and 1833, title to most of the land of the Passamaquoddy Penobscot people was transferred to the state of Maine. The land transfers were never approved by the U.S. Congress uh, and until the Maine Indian uh, Claim Settlement of 1980. And that's when, after we, we all reached that agreement, uh, those transactions in the past that had been made uh, were, uh, became legal. The Holton Band of Maliseets eventually became a party to the settlement as well. Although not a part of the original land claim suit, the Maliseet people also had Aboriginal territory in Maine. Uh, uh, the basis of their claim was different from that of the Passamaquoddy tribe and the Penobscot Nation because they had never signed treaties giving up their land in Maine. Now, this the whole thing was sort of started with a, in, in 1957, when, when Joseph Stevens discovered a copy, the uh, Passamaquoddy tribal member Joseph Stevens discovered a copy of the 1794 treaty between the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and the Pas Passamaquoddy tribe <clears throat> because they had, uh, I guess they had claimed that this treaty had been lost. And so it was kind of, it was found in a, I, I, I think it was a shoebox. Um, 
but the but the uh, but the treaty, uh, among other things, reserved title for the tribe in perpetuity to twenty three thousand acres at Indian Township, fifteen islands in the Saint Croix River, and two islands in Big Lake near Township. By the time Stevens found the tribe's copy, one fourth of the 23,000 acres had been alienated in the hands of non-Indians. So, of course, you know, the, the tribe through all of those years, the, the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot, had witnessed the, uh, the, the taking of, of their lands. And, uh, and with their, the taking of the lands, uh, also the, re, their resources that they could, you know, gain uh, wealth with. So the tribes were kept in poverty for years and years because they basically had, they had no capital. Uh, what really started the whole process off, this whole uh, huge event was uh, this uh, William Plasted, who was a non-Indian, acquired control of a parcel of land in Indian Township from the town of Princeton which had uh, seized it as compensation for uh, burying an indigent Passamaquoddy person. In 1964, at a poker game in Princeton, uh, Plasted won another parcel of Passamaquoddy land next to the property uh, he already controlled. His new parcel included an area that for years had been used as a garden by John Stevens, the brother of tribal governor, uh, I'm sorry, George Stevens, uh, the brother of tribal governor John Stevens. So when Plasta decided to begin building new cabins on the land, the tribe was angry. They set up uh, roadblocks and tried to halt his efforts. A group of uh, Passamaquoddy women sat in to protest and block construction on the disputed land. Uh, they were arrested by the Maine State Police and taken to jail. Charges of trespass later were dropped. Tribal Governor Stevens and other tribal leaders drove to Augusta to plead for help uh, from Governor John Reed. Uh, Governor Reed told them there was nothing he could do. This event produced two major results. It called attention to the more than 6,000 acres of Indian land that had been sold, leased, or given away in violation of the 1794 treaty. And over the last 150 years, the state had sold, leased, uh, or leased for 999 years, or claimed by eminent domain, portions of Passamaquoddy and Penobscot land guaranteed by their treaties. The second thing, it convinced the Passamaquoddy tribe to file the first land claims uh, lawsuit. They filed the suit in March 1968 in Massachusetts which claimed that Maine had violated the 1794 treaty while it was a province of Massachusetts, and uh, which asked for damages of 150 million for 6,000 acres of land that had been stolen from the tribe. Three days after the suit was filed, their attorney was arrested for possession of marijuana, and the lawsuit he filed never went before Massachusetts court. And there's a lot of talk about that, uh, that situation that uh, that attorney was, you know, possibly 
uh, set up, and there's lots of stories about that. But uh, that was the end of that uh, particular avenue for them to follow, for the Passamaquoddy to follow suit. The, uh, and then, of course, came Tom Tureen, who used another tact, and he, and he used the 1790 uh, Non-Intercourse Act Treaty as the, uh, as the reason to pursue the case. And, of course, that, that argument uh, was successful. Now, there were certain views uh, about the Settlement Act. Of course, you know, it's not every tribal member was in agreement that this was a good thing to do. So there, was, there were arguments. Uh, the settlement uh, provoked controversy in the Wabanaki communities. It, it provoked, uh, uh, as, as it was going through, as, as negotiations were taking place, it certainly provoked lots of uh, threatened violence in non-Indian communities. So it was really a, a, a hot-button issue and topic. So, um, and, the, uh, and because there, there never had been a claim like this before, it was difficult to determine what a reasonable settlement would be um, if the case were handled like previous claims by the uh, Indian Claims Commission. For example, the outcome would likely have been one million and no right to regain land. On the other hand, the Native people were theoretically entitled to their claim, the 12.5 million acres of land and $25 billion. <laughs> $25 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, a majority of the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot people had favored pursuing negotiation, and the tribal councils appointed negotiators to represent them. A majority also voted to accept the settlement, but some in favor of negotiation opposed the particular settlement offered to them, and others wanted further court action and were against the very idea of negotiation. Now, the opponents of the settlement, some of those arguments were... Uh, Number one is they felt that Native peoples were sovereign peoples, even when they are not treated as such, and that the settlement fell far short of paying respect to this idea. No amount of land and money could compensate them for the loss of sovereignty. Some believed that a world forum would be more appropriate than the United States court system for deciding an issue involving sovereign people. And some people and who didn't feel that way then, like myself, feel that way now, that uh, there should be a, uh, an international uh, court system to hear the, uh, the, uh, the arguments on both sides. Because, you know, it's like um, the, the state and the, and the tribes may disagree on a certain legal term, and that term or that issue is defined in the state court. So when you look at it on its face, with that sort of uh, litigation, it's not really, it, it, it's not fair. Uh, secondly, many were concerned that 
treating the reservations like, and this is a huge, hot issue. Uh, many were concerned that treating the reservations like municipalities would undermine their capacities to continue as separate and cohesive communities. And that issue has really haunted the tribes uh, because that the state in, in uh, court rulings, which we'll look at closer again next month, uh, in court rulings, has, has said that uh, the tribes are uh, political subdivisions of the state of Maine. And uh, they are not uh, sovereign, sovereign nations. And therefore, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, a lot of the, uh, the sovereignty that they claim uh, does, does not exist. And, and that's due to some language in the Settlement Act that uh, equates tribes to municipalities. And the, it's always been the tribal position that we are not municipalities. We never have been municipalities. We never intended to be a municipality. And the fact that we are considered political subdivisions of the state is ludicrous since our governments were here long before the state of Maine was ever uh, created. Anyway, so the, the third is uh, many people objected to various settlement provisions concerning jurisdiction, including the ap applicability of state laws on reservations, state hunting and fishing controls, payments in lieu of taxes on reservation properties, state power of eminent domain over trust land, no matter how limited, and the veto power given to the U.S. Secretary of Interior in regard to such things as land use plans. So those were things that before this settlement, uh, not all of these things, but uh, many of these things before the settlement, the, the tribes had uh, exclusive jurisdiction. And when they negotiated with the state of Maine, uh, the state of Maine uh, kept or took away that that jurisdiction. Uh, and uh, fourthly, uh, many pointed out that a vote on the complicated legal document was taken so quickly that many people were not entirely sure what was included in the settlement terms. So, I, and I do remember attending a number of these uh, these meetings to discuss the the details and uh, when the vote was uh, came up, it did come up very quickly. Uh, and uh, I remember saying them saying that you know this has to go uh, has to go now. We can't wait because of the uh, the change in uh, in uh, the presidency. Uh, Carter was on his way out, and uh, Reagan was on his way in. And Reagan had said he would not sign uh, a, a settlement act. So that was the, the leverage that was used to sort of uh, push this, uh, this to a vote quickly before, you know, depending on the uh, presidential elections. Now, the arguments by the supporters were uh, as follows. Uh, number one was, uh, like the opponents, the supporters of the settlement also believed that self-determination was imperative. They saw land and money as the practical means of obtaining a new measure of self-determination. 
They hoped that through wise use of the new wealth, they could provide for themselves into the def- indefinite future. So they, they were looking for a sustainable economic way uh, to provide for their families, to climb out of this, uh, you know, this, this poverty, this uh, generational poverty that they'd been in. Uh, uh, without outside aid and the interference that accompanies it. So they thought, well, with this money, we can become successful economically. We won't need to depend on the federal government or the state or, or anybody else. And, uh, you know, we can, we can be our own people. Secondly, given their past experience, they had many questions. Could they rely on a non-native court system to return two-thirds of the state of Maine and award billions of dollars in damages when the law demanded it? Could they rely on a non-native Congress in Washington to be fair when some claimed it had the power to extinguish much of their claims uh, simply by passing a law that ratified the old treaties? How many people in Maine would turn angrily against them due to the economic disruption caused by such a protracted legal struggle? So these were these were all questions that the the tribal members who supported the passage of this act still had uh, in in the in the back of their minds. Uh, And third, they were concerned that outcome could not be foreseen. There was no guarantee that they would emerge from such a struggle with something they wanted or even with those rights already recognized. Arguments of uh, settlement supporters carried the day and resulted in the agreement. So that was the, the, uh, they had uh, the questions before the communities and the communities voted in favor of the terms of the Settlement Act. Now the state, I I told you the pros and cons from the tribal perspective. Now the state had some views on this as well. Um, In spite of the fact that Maine officials articulated the views that the land claims were without merit and that it was not fair to raise a 200-year-old claim the state supported the settlement. During hearings on March 28, 1980, before the legislators, legislature's Joint Select Committee on the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement, uh, the Attorney General at the time, uh, Richard Cohen, uh, did a presentation uh, as a representative of, of Governor Brennan and uh, presented several arguments in support of the settlement. Number one, there was a serious chance that the state of Maine and some of its citizens might have some s- substantial liability. The settlement would extinguish all Indian claims to Maine land and Maine money. So that was a big plus to them. They'd have no longer have this question hanging over their heads about all of this, uh, this land that uh, was uh, supposedly stolen from the tribes. If the matter went to trial, it would be very costly to the state. During an uncertain period of litigation, the ability of the, of the state municipalities and private corporations to market bonds uh, 
would be severely jeopardized. Titles to real estate would be difficult to transfer. There would be serious economic and social disruption and turmoil. And they would were to, uh, I think they got a little taste of that when they, uh, they knew when the uh, the bonding, uh, when they went to bond for municipal bonds that wasn't uh, wasn't allowed. And that, and that kind of this is what basically made them take the uh, the claim seriously. Number three, the settlement was financially advantageous advantageous to the state. Federal government would appropriate millions of dollars to enable the tribes to purchase 300,000 acres of land because the tribes would receive substantial federal financial assistance as federally recognized tribes. The state could terminate its funding, which at that time was uh, $1.7 million uh, for the Department of Indian Affairs, Indian Education, and the Maine Indian Housing Authority. So they could just stop paying that. You know, not only, you know, the, the federal government would foot the bill for the land, but they'd no longer have to pay anything out uh, through uh, education or uh, uh, Indian affairs, state Indian affairs. Number four, the settlement would not, would not create a nation within a nation. That was Longley's phrase. There'd be a favorable tribal-state jurisdictional relationship described by Attorney General Cohen as follows. The framework of laws in this act is by far the most favorable state-Indian jurisdictional relationship that exists anywhere in the United States. As a general rule, states have little authority to enforce state laws on Indian lands. Tax laws, water and air pollution laws, zoning laws, health laws, contract and business laws, and criminal laws, all those state laws are usually unenforceable on state Indian lands. More than half of the states in the United States have Indian lands within their borders, and most of those states are engaged in continual battles with Indian tribes over the question of whether state laws apply to those lands. In fact, in Maine, the state Supreme Court has recently ruled that Maine cannot enforce its criminal laws on the existing Indian reservation and lacks jurisdiction over those, those reservations. If the Indians were successful in the land claim and recovered some land, not only would we lose the land, but also we would probably be unable to enforce state laws on those lands. I believe such a result would be intolerable. The proposal before you not only avoids such a situation, but recovers for the state much of the jurisdiction over the existing reservations that it has lost in recent litigation. So it really was uh, in the state's favor to pass this land claims. And uh, when the dust settled and the land claim was passed, uh, the state really uh, probably did, uh, the state, there's no question about it, the state did 
a lot better than the tribes did. The state had all of this jurisdiction, and the tribes had most of their jurisdiction, uh, had given up most of their jurisdiction. Um, I, I can't help but think of a discussion that I had with uh, um, one of the senators in, in the uh, Judiciary Committee room when we were talking about the land claims. And the senator uh, basically said that, uh, you know, what are, what are you... Uh, what are you concerned about? You guys gave up your, your sovereignty. You, you sold your sovereignty for $80 million. That's what she, she said. And uh, sadly, sometimes, it, sometimes I, I, I wonder if that's, if that's really not, not the case. But we certainly didn't mean to sell our sovereignty. It was, uh, it's being eroded with the Land Claim Settlement uh, Act being the tool to erode it, and it's being eroded uh, with every case that goes to the uh, state courts. Um, I was just looking through, I, there's a, a lot of articles that have been written about the land claims, and the in October 10th, uh, uh, this year will mark the 30th anniversary of the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. So that's why you know I thought it was important to talk a little bit about the the act uh, on this show. And I came across uh, a series of articles in the Bangor Daily News that they that they wrote. Uh, a decade, which is almost 10 years after the Settlement Act. And uh, the article is, in, is entitled uh, Tribal Life a Decade Later. I mean, it's, uh, it's actually Maine, Indi Maine Indians, Legacy of the Land Claims. And it, it's a six-part uh, written series. And it goes into, into, into a lot of depth about the... Uh, uh, the investments and uh, how the land claims started. The, the whole story, they interviewed something like uh, 75 uh, tribal members who live on and off uh, the reservations. And uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting, some of these, uh, these pieces that, they, that they've uh, put together. And they, they talked, they did one piece, this, uh, and they had, I think, seven seven uh, journalists that were involved in, in the article. And I wonder what would happen if they did a 30-year uh, investigation along the same lines uh, as they did a decade. You know, you look at it two decades since, uh, some of these, uh, some of these uh, stories. But uh, there's one uh, article, it's called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, and it was in uh, September 9th through the 10th, the 1989 article. And uh, it talked about uh, federal funds. And, you know, sometimes I think that when uh, Judge Janu made his decision to, that the tribe should be federally recognized, if in fact we would have stopped there, how much better off <laughs> we'd be today. But anyway, uh, 
he's this uh, reporter, and I don't, I don't see the name on his on this uh, this article, but it says uh, federal funds. It's a subtitle. And uh, on January twentieth, nineteen seventy-five, at a key juncture in the legal sparring over the lawsuit, federal uh, judge Edward T. Genot ruled that the Maine tribes were the wards of the federal government, not the state of Maine. That ruling forced the U.S. Department, uh, U.S. Justice Department, to sue Maine for violations of the 1790 Federal Non-Intercourse Treaty, which prohibited state governments from sanctioning the sale of Indian land to non-Indians. Well, in this particular article, uh, uh, back then, um, Alan Sockbason, who was the former governor, uh, had some things to say about the uh, uh, the uh, the funding. Uh, Alan Sockbason, a former governor of the Passamaquoddies, who participated in the land claims negotiations, recalled living under the old system while growing up at Indian Township. And I quote, this is Alan Sockbason in the article, he says, the state Indian agent was our only contact with the outside world. Once a week, he would drive up to the reservation and give out boxes of groceries to make sure nobody starved. Uh, Sock Basin said, needy families were allotted $25 a week and enough money to pay for the heating oil. State bureaucrats called Maine's uh, relationship with the tribes a trusteeship. It was a polite word for welfare, said Sock Basin. Today, federal funds are providing dramatically expanded services and facilities in such areas as health and education. For example, before federal recognition, and this is not before the land claims, this is before federal recognition, virtually, and, he, and I, this is Alan, virtually nothing was offered on the Pleasant Point Reservation in the way of health services. I'm sorry, said Brian Altivator, the reservation's tribal health director. Today, reservation residents have free access to the services of more than a dozen full and part-time professionals, from a doctor to a psychologist. We used to have a dentist who worked here four days a week. Now we have a hard time keeping a dentist working two days a week, said Altivator. So the, uh, the, the fact that the, the federal funds were coming into the tribes was a real boost to the, uh, to the tribal economy, to, uh, to housing construction, to health, to education. Um, and... Uh, so in, in that respect, the, the, uh, the federal funds and the federal funding was sort of like a, an answer to a lot of people's wants. But as things progressed, and uh, I, I kind of call it the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the dark ages of the, of the land claims, because after the, after the money started trickling in and they started investing in, uh, in different uh, economic uh, projects, 
then things started to change, and the money, well, you know, lots of the money uh, just sort of was not accounted for. Uh, management was not very good, and uh, during this this whole this whole thing, it was it was said by some uh, legislators and and people in state government that you know the tribes are not used to handling this amount of money, and uh, you know we we really don't want this to happen anyway. And we just we're just going to sit back and uh, and and watch what happens and uh, and, uh, and and that's basically what they did and and, and the tribes uh, had to had to uh, had to depend on on people like uh, like Tom Tureen and um, people that he knew and he networked with to sort of uh, help invest and many of those investments. Um, went by the wayside, and over the years, thirty years later, I don't I don't see uh, many of those uh, investments, um, if any, uh, making any profits. And I think we we lost uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the the money that we gained in the uh, in the Settlement Act. So that basically is a quick sketch of the background of the uh, of the Land Claims Settlement Act. And uh, next month we'll be talking to, I'm going to try to get uh, uh, some of the chiefs in here to discuss uh, how they see the Settlement Act affecting current issues and current uh, policies uh, as the tribes move forward to uh, 30 years, 30 years later. Um, and also with the, uh, you know, the, the other thing too was uh, the economic development piece. Uh, I think it was 1984 that the Penobscot Nation started their uh, high-stakes bingo. And they were making some good money on that high-stakes bingo. And, uh, and the, uh, the state took them to court, state court, because they said that uh, gaming was illegal in the state and that uh, they had to stop their operations. So then that was, you know, that's only one of the, uh, the state court decisions that, that uh, very drastically negatively impacted uh, a tribal government. So... I do want to just mention a few things here uh, before I, we leave the air. Uh, one of them is the uh, the Abbey Museum is uh, uh, having a deconstructing stereotypes about American Indians on the Tuesday, the twenty eighth, in Bar Harbor. Uh, that's uh, it's a free event and it's at the uh, Abbey Museum Community Gallery from 6:30 to 8 p.m. Another event that uh, I'd like to mention is October 12th at the University of New England, St. Francis Room at noon. Isabel Knockwood will be uh, giving a lecture 
on uh, on residential schools and her her life uh, and the time she spent in the residential schools and also the uh, prime minister's apology. She uh, Isabel wrote a book called uh, Out of the Depth, and it's a very very powerful book. And uh, I really look forward to her lecture, and I know that uh, people that attend that will not be disappointed. Uh, it's very, it's very powerful. Um, so with that, I will close and hope to see you, uh, to talk to you again next month. Uh, you're listening to WERU Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Our topic today was the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his new CD, Dreamwalk. Thank you, and uh, talk to you next month. <laughs> <laughs>